What's the matter? Huh? You're not scared of your room, are you? It's dark. It's the nightmares, Nick. Michael, the cellar's dark. Your room's dark. Everything's dark at night. Pretty soon we'll turn off all the lights and it'll be dark everywhere. You really like the dark, don't you, Michael? You can be yourself in the dark. But you know, there's one dark place that we have to be very careful in. Do you know where that is? Ladies and gentlemen, every once in a spell, I enjoy changing up the stories I tell. You see, horror doesn't always have to be stabbing and cutting and ripping and gutting and terror and screams and nightmarish dreams and unending misery and warlocking witchery and cereal beasts and cannibal feasts and black storm clouds dripping blood rain and ghastly ones reaching right into your brain. No. Today's stories are more fun. These stories, more light. And you may not enjoy them, but then again, you just might. There won't be any monsters, and there aren't any cults. Just three bedtime stories for weird adults. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem, killers, cannibals, and cults, fearful fiction and furious fact, tall tales, and terrible truths. This is a scary home companion. One evening, while riding home with his parents, a little boy named Finn saw something odd. Who is that, he said, while they were stopped at a red light. Both of his parents looked around, but they didn't see anybody. Finn said, he's wearing a bunny costume, and he looks hurt. But they just said, Finn, there is no one there. They looked at each other, clucked their tongues, and drove him home. That night, while laying in bed, he saw someone outside of his window. It was the man in the bunny costume. One of his ears was broken and mangled, hanging down over his face. Part of the bunny mask had been torn away, but there were too many shadows for Finn to see what he looked like. The bunny raised one hand and waved slowly. And Finn saw that the bunny only had one hand with which to wave. The other arm was gone below the elbow. And the sleeve of the costume just hung there, flapping in the breeze. Finn knew that he should be scared, but for some reason he wasn't. Instead of being scared, he thought about a song that his teacher had recently taught him in kindergarten. 
Little bunny foo-foo, hopping through the forest. Picking up the field mice, bopping them on the head. The bunny seemed to like that. He turned, and he walked into the woods and was gone. The next morning, Finn woke up before his parents. This was not unusual. Finn always woke up before his parents. So he made himself some breakfast and poured himself some juice. He looked in on his parents and saw them sleeping in bed. Then he went to the front door where he found something alarming. Field mice. A whole pile of them in a heap on the front porch. And it appeared as if they had all been bopped on the head. That day after school, Finn was playing in the yard when he saw a neighbor dog that had gotten loose and was walking near the street. So he tried to go and help it. Maybe the dog was startled by Finn, or maybe it was just mean, but it bit him right on the wrist. It hurt so much, he ran screaming into the house to his mother, who ended up being cross with him for leaving the yard in the first place and for messing around with that mean old dog. That night, the bunny came back to his window. It waved at him. He waved back, and then he started to sing. Little bunny foo-foo, hopping through the forest, picking up that mean dog, bopping him on the head. The bunny turned and walked into the woods and was gone. The next morning, Finn woke up before his parents. He made himself some breakfast and poured himself some juice. He looked in on his parents and saw them sleeping in bed. Then he went to the front door where he found something disturbing. That mean old dog was in a heap on the front porch. Its head had been caved in. When his parents woke up, Finn showed them what he had found. They were upset by it. And he did not seem upset by it at all, which made them much more upset. So they sent Finn to his room, where he pressed his ear to the door, and he eavesdropped, and he heard them talking about him. His dad suspected that he had killed the dog, and his mom was thinking the same thing. He heard them use words like, troubled, disturbed, withdrawn, maladjusted. They told him that they weren't going to send him to school that day, and they told him that he probably shouldn't go back to school for a while. For the meantime, while they figured out what to do, Finn was to stay in his room. And he was very upset. He told them that he didn't hurt that dog. And they said that they believed him, but he could tell that they didn't. They made him stay in his room all day and into the night, And his feelings were very hurt that they did not believe him. And so, that night, when the bunny came back and waved to him, Finn sang, Little bunny foo-foo, hopping through the forest, picking up my parents and bopping them on the head. The bunny turned and walked into the woods, and was gone. The next morning, Finn woke up before his parents, 
So he made himself some breakfast and poured himself some juice. And then he went to the front door where he found nothing alarming and nothing disturbing. So he went to look in on his parents. And he found them still in bed with their skulls staved in and all covered in red. The bunny was standing in the corner, but when he turned to look at it, all he saw was a mirror on the wall. The bunny was inside it, instead of his reflection, waving back at him. Finn closed his eyes. Little bunny foo-foo, I don't want to see you. This is a story about how Gus fell off the roof. Trust me, it is not at all what you think. First of all, there was a long and arduous tale of woe that led Gus up to this point. And for the sake of expediency, let me just bullet point it for you. Gus had been in a car accident, and one of his sons had broken a leg, and one of his daughters had broken her arm. And the car had been totaled, and the insurance had run out for both broken legs, broken arms, and broken cars, which ultimately cost Gus his house and forced him to move somewhere far away, right up into the belly of the polar vortex. He had to live in a house owned by his mother's sister's boy. Now, a grown man living under someone else's roof That's a tough road to hoe, Buster. Having to take care of two broken-limbed children and four regular children was no better of roses either. Suffice to say, over the last few weeks, the needle that marked Gus's stress levels had inched up steadily and precipitously. And then it happened, not too long after the move, that the pipes in the house froze on the coldest day of the last ten years. All eight of them snowed in for three days. No cable, no Wi-Fi, no running water. Gus had to bathe his son in LaCroix peach pear because his daughters had used up all the passion fruit. 
And then when the snow melted and the ice had retreated back to wherever ice comes from, Gus found that the storm had badly damaged the house. Even though it was not his house, it belonged to his mother's sister's boy, Gus was the man of it currently and therefore was responsible for those repairs. And so that that needle just kept on rising, up, 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 up. He really needed to make these repairs, and quickly, but the problem was that he had to work most days, and when he didn't have to work, then his wife had to work, and he had to watch all of the kids. So there was no time for repairs, but he couldn't just sit idly by while there was a growing hole in the roof, and while the molding was peeling off the front of the house, and that little needle just kept going tick, 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 tick. And then one day, there came a day where Gus had a day, a real day, to himself. The wife was taking all of the kids to go meet with his mother's sister's boy, which seemed a little suspicious to Gus, but seeing as how it was giving him some quiet time to get things fixed, he decided he wasn't going to think about it too much. The first thing he did was to set up two sawhorses in the front driveway and get out his plywood and his circular saw. There were all manner of extension cords laying around, but for some reason there was only one power strip. So, grumbling at the extra work, Gus set up the power strip on the second floor of the house. He ran one extension cord out through an open window and down to the saw in the driveway, and another extension cord went up through an open skylight and to the roof for his nail gun and his electric hot tar bucket. For a moment, maybe even for two, Gus felt a a slight sense of calm wash over him, which was just as quickly washed away when he heard the birthday party starting next door. In the neighbor's yard were no less than 16 second-grade girls, all dressed as princesses, and all of them apparently engaged in a contest to see who could scream the loudest. So that brief sense of calm was replaced by a a deep throbbing pressure in the middle of his head. Made him feel like his skull was going to explode. So he just decided to get to work. Let's drown out all of that horrific birthday joy with the shrill shriek of the circular saw. So he started to try and cut some boards, but almost immediately the circular saw sputtered out. Gus took off the housing, he checked the inner works and all the connections. Nothing seemed broken, but it just didn't work. So he decided to table it, literally and figuratively, and stomp upstairs to the roof, where, much to his chagrin, he found that the electric hot tar bucket was also broken. It was barely working. The tar was still gooey and soft, not fit for roofing. So he gave it a little kick, and then he stumbled and stepped on the nail gun, which fired a nail right through the side of the electric tar bucket. Cursing a blue streak and swearing bloody murder, Gus pulled that nail out of the bucket, and that gooey tar started to ooze out all over his hand. As was his custom whenever he was angry and frustrated, Gus rubbed 
the top of his head. At which point he found that the tar was starting to set up and bonding with the hair of his head and the skin of his hand. So he pulled and he tugged on his scalp and it wouldn't budge. He shouted out a torrent of profanity so loudly and so intensely that the entire girl's birthday party fell into a deep and stunned silence. He stormed around the roof, hand planted firmly on the top of his head, raging and swearing and absolutely not minding the extension cords. And this precise moment was when his wife's car pulled up to the end of the drive and honked at him. And that noise startled Gus just a little bit. A little bit was all it took. He got his ankle caught in one of those extension cords and he slipped and he tripped and he fell off the side of the roof head first. The extension cords were very strong and they were connected together inside the house like a web. So when he fell, there was a sharp pull on the cords had jostled them and pulled them tight and somehow seemed to be slowing his descent. He was falling head first still, clutching on to the top of his scalp, but he was starting to slow. And that's when he saw that the sharp pull of the extension cords had also managed to jolt the circular saw back into working again. And it buzzed loudly, aimed straight upwards, this naked blade free of housing or protection. The extension cords worked almost like a bungee, They pulled tight just as that saw blade sliced all the way through his neck. And then they pulled him back upwards, where he dangled and wriggled like a fish on the line, hanging by his ankle upside down from the roof. Blood geysered out of the stump of his neck while his bowels released and his bladder burst, exploding from every end of him like the fountains of the Bellagio. All the while, his severed head was still firmly glued to his hand staring right at his wife and children while the onlooking girls of the second grade started to scream. And you know how they say you have a few seconds of brain activity left in your noggin before you exit stage left? With his, Gus thought, hmm, not such a bad day after all. See him running from the porch Like some kind of human torch Orange tendrils everywhere Acrid stench of burning hair Flailing like a drowning bird In the dirt he scrawls this word O-H-M-Y-G-O-D-I-M-O-N-F-I-R-E La 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 la
get a chance to do so, I like to tell you guys stories from my past. Like the summer that I went hunting for the skunk ape and the time that I found that crawl space behind my bedroom and of course the time that I ate too much acid and mushrooms. This is about the time, the first, and as it turned out, last time that I ever fooled around with a Ouija board. I was in high school at the time. I was a sophomore in high school at the time, which would have made it around 1989. And we had had this Ouija board in the house for some time, but I just hadn't ever been tempted to mess around with it. I know that spirit boards have a, have a long and storied history, but this was an actual Ouija board brand name patented by Parker Brothers and how legit is an occult item if you can get it at Toys R Us, really. That year, I got to know a young man named Jim, whose last name I remember but withhold out of respect. Jim was a weird guy. He was this sun-baked bleached, blonde, windblown surfer guy that wore flip-flops and long jam surf shorts to school, even though it was against the dress code. He was also a freshman, the only freshman that drove himself to and from school in this enormous yellow Lincoln town car, also uh, against school policy. But That was Jim. He just did whatever. He just drifted in and out. Now, back then, I did not know what a Matthew McConaughey was. But if you could reverse Matthew McConaughey back to, like, age 16, he might have been Jim. Jim was the sort of guy where one day, not long after the release of the movie Dark Man... He told everybody that his new nickname was Darkman. And although it is the epitome of uncool to give yourself a nickname, this is the sort of guy that Jim was, where everybody just said, okay, you know, you're Darkman now. And then came the accident. One night, um, Jim was riding home with his... uh, with his mother from Orlando down the turnpike middle of the night in a pickup truck. And Jim was asleep in the bed of the pickup truck for whatever reason. Well, his, uh, his mother sort of nods off asleep at the wheel. She skids, she swerves, she goes into the median, the pickup flips and Jim goes flying out of the back of the truck And he lands on the opposite side of the highway in the middle of one of the lanes right in front of 
oncoming traffic. And he was uh, hit, run over, and altogether crushed, according to the news report, by a semi-truck. This was uh, the first time that I had actually had a, had a friend die, and it was in such sudden, unexpected, and horrific circumstances. It really made an, an impression on me. Um, there was an article about it in the paper. I, I, you know, I clipped that article. It was just like a photo of the crime scene in the truck. I don't know why I wanted to keep it, but I thought it was important to keep it. And I grieved. You know, I missed him. He was my friend. And I had to try and reconcile it. You know, um, when my grandmother or grandfather pass, it's one thing. But uh, somebody that's actually a little younger than me, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. But you do. You wrap your head around it, and then you keep going on. Life goes on. High school, there's all sorts of other stuff to to worry about and stress about. It's not like I forgot my friend, but you just move on. Fast forward to that summer. I'm still 15. I'm still not driving, so I spend a lot of time at home that summer. And my younger sister and I got around to busting out that Ouija board for no reason in particular. She had a friend over one night named Nareem, and we decided to uh, sit on the floor of my darkened bedroom, put the planchette in the middle of the Ouija board, and put her hands on it. That's what you call that uh, little eyepiece doodad that moves around the board and highlights things called planchette. Almost immediately, all three of us have, have, have one index finger, the tip of an index finger on the edge of, of the planchette. And almost immediately, it springs to life and is moving around the board. I can say with 100% certainty that I wasn't guiding it at all that night, at all. But moreover, I don't see how either of the other two people there could have either, like I was astutely paying attention for cheating and everybody just had the gentle touch of a fingertip on the corner of this planchette. No one was moving it around and yet it was moving around. Yes, no, hello, goodbye, spelling out words. We're asking questions. We're playing around. At first there seems like there's very little rhyme or reason to it, particularly because it keeps saying FR587H. And then some other stuff too, but it keeps going back to FR587H. Whatever that means. So in time, we end up debating amongst ourselves and fashioning a line of questioning spirit. You know, are we talking to a spirit? Yes. You know, and so, all right, let's, let's dig into this. Who are we talking to? J-I-M-D-A-R-K-M-A-N. And right then, I took my hand off of the planchette. I didn't stand up and walk away dramatically, but 
I definitely yanked my hand away like that thing was hot. But it was too intriguing. I couldn't just stop there, right? Especially since, as I had mentioned, it's a hard enough thing to reconcile. Wouldn't this be a good way for my subconscious to give me some closure? My first thought. So put my hand back on the planchette and we start playing again, asking it more it, asking the board more questions. Because I had absolutely no reason to think that it was actually my friend speaking to me from the other side. Especially since I couldn't get an answer out of the board that night that wasn't something that I already knew to begin with. There was no reason for me to think that I wasn't somehow subconsciously manipulating this. You know, I know that. I know that this is a psychological thing. It's not supernatural. It comes from Toys R Us. It can't possibly be like a legit way to talk to the dead or else everybody would be doing it, right? Jim, if this is really you, you've got to be able to, to tell me something to prove it, I, I say to the board. Tell me something that I can't possibly know so that I know that I'm really talking to you. And there was a long silence. And then the planchette starts moving again. FR587H, FR587H, FR587H. I ask more questions, nothing. FR587H over and over and over again. It's like stuck in a loop. So, all right, that's it. I'm, I just got frustrated. Whatever it was, it was broken. Whatever like crazy magic that Parker Brothers packed into this box, it was broken. So we packed it up and we put it back in the closet. It was a few days later where I actually got the crazy idea to, um, go into my desk and pull out that old file folder that I had filled with just random stuff and look at that newspaper clipping that I had saved from when Jim died. It was a picture of the truck and the crime scene. And I looked very closely. It took a magnifying glass, but I saw it. The license plate of that truck was FR587H. And I realized that Jim was trying to tell me the last thing he saw, the last thing that went through his mind, both figuratively and literally. His last second was this license plate bearing down on his face, FR587H, before he died. And after I saw that, I took the Ouija board out of the closet and threw it into the goddamn garbage can. Because like the old movie says, children shouldn't play with dead things. Ooh. Ooh.
Thank you for listening to A Scary Home Companion. Home to all the darkest thoughts I imagine. This episode, the editing was very much aided by my associate producer, Jeff, son of David. Logan Whitehurst and Coolsy and Charlie Borlay provided the music that you heard here today. You can download them all and much more to your drive if you just follow the episode links to the free music archive. If you have any feedback, please send it through email to a scary home companion at Gmail. I know that this time I went light on the gore. I mean, it was still in there, but there could have been more. But next time, I promise, the story will be very different. Much darker and starker and much more vociferant. It's an epic two-parter about the Blood King. And I swear, cross my heart, that I'm not going to sing. Now, before anything else passes between us, come back very soon for a tale called The Machinist. Ooh.